This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is John Schwang, CEO of Aquent, a creative staffing agency that places freelance employees in companies like Google and Apple. At Aquent, Schwang and his team have figured out something very important about the changing U.S. economy. Today, the workforce is very, very different than, than my parents' workforce. Not all talent want a full-time 30-year career at the same company. If you do, that's great. But a lot of workers today want more flexibility. They want to choose where they want to work or who they want to work on. They want, they want to balance work and life. My conversation with John in just a moment, but now, what's ahead? Well, of course, other than the virus, the big news is politically Super Tuesday. 14 states, including biggies like Texas and California. As I've mentioned before, the Democratic Party nomination fight is really two contests. One contest is for what you might call the socialist nomination between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie's been winning that one by a country mile. Elizabeth Warren, even though she got a lot of money after a good debate performance a couple of weeks ago, needs to do well in Super Tuesday or her candidacy will end because she will not get a new batch of contributions. On the other side, the so-called moderate side, you've got Mayor Bloomberg coming in. As we know, he had a disastrous first debate. Okay, second debate, not great. But he thought he was going to sweep the field for the moderates and be the only one against Bernie. That's not happening. You've also got Mayor Pete of South Bend, Indiana, Amy Klobuchar, and of course, Joe Biden. Joe Biden got a new lease on life. So-so debate performance. That was good for him. A win in South Carolina. But now he's got to do well on Super Tuesday or he's going to be in trouble. Why is Bernie the front runner right now? Because no one has emerged to be his only opponent. However, because of the Democrats' peculiar rules on the allocation of delegates, we still could have, even if Bernie does well on Tuesday, a deadlock convention, somebody not winning on the first ballot. Who might emerge from that? Well, my favorite is Amy Klobuchar. She's not swept the field yet, but she's hanging in there. And if she can hang in there, she could be the compromised choice. On the economic front, a lot of news coming up this week. On Monday, the ISM Manufacturing Index comes out. How is manufacturing doing? Durable goods orders for January, not so good. That's primarily because of transportation. What about the rest of the economy? Another number that comes out on Monday is construction spending. Is that moving up again? Tuesday, vehicle sales. They've not been gangbusters in the last couple of years. We'll see how they're doing now. Wednesday, the ADP employment report. That usually that always comes out before the official unemployment numbers, which we'll get on Friday, but it's usually a pretty good indicator. Then also on Wednesday, we get the ISM, non-manufacturing report. Those ISM reports are purchasing managers. And if they're happy, if the index is above 50, that means expansion. If it's going down or below 50, not so good for the economy. On Thursday, another batch coming out. Factory orders. How are America's factories doing? Jobless claims. Are they starting to inch up again? So far, they've been fairly low. 
And then on Friday, we get the big one, the employment report. How is the economy doing? Are we still having very, very low unemployment rates? Are we still creating a good number of new jobs? That'll be a crucial report. And then, of course, on Sunday at 2 a.m. when you should be asleep, officially daylight savings times come in, which means spring is not that far away. We on the East Coast know that March is going to be a colder month than usual, so we'll take whatever help we can get. But remember, daylight savings time. Good news, longer days ahead. And now, I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with John Schwang, CEO of Aquent, who joined me via phone to talk about the evolution of the gig business, the importance of worker benefits, and how legislation like California's Assembly Bill 5 will intervene in the trend of benefits inequality. Some feel that what they call AB5, Assembly Bill 5, is devastating for small businesses, but John Schwang takes a different view. My special guest today is John Schwang. He's the co-founder and CEO of Aquent, the largest marketing creative staffing agency in the world. Started in a Harvard dorm in 1986, now employs 10,000 people in eight countries. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. It's an amazing story, but now the whole economy is at the center of a huge transformation of the U.S. workforce. Obviously, Aquent is a key part of it. Whether you call people independent contractors, on-demand workers, part-time employees, contingent workers, gig workers, outsource teams, whatever you want to call it, it is becoming a growing part of the U.S. economy. Some say it's as high as 42 million, 50 million. Some have pointed out younger workers want to set their own schedules, accumulate new skills on their own terms. Someone has said it's a new frontier of technology that's emerging to tap into this unique pool of talent. So with John, we're going to discuss first the rise of his amazing company and his insights on where this gig economy is going and the big issue of the day, benefits for alternative workers versus traditional full-time employees. John has outspoken views on this. He, contrary to many of his peers, thinks some benefits should be mandated if users of gig workers don't do it on their own. Shocking, he even had nice words on this subject for far-left Senator Elizabeth Warren. But first, John, your unique background. Your parents came from Taiwan. Tell us about that. Yeah, my parents came from uh, Taiwan for education. They studied in Seattle uh, and then uh, both uh, got jobs in, in New York, uh, where, I was, uh, where I was born. Um, and so uh, uh, my, um, my parents um, uh, very much wanted to uh, live in America because of uh, the freedoms and the opportunities um, that this country afforded. And uh, uh, they became citizens, and uh, you know, I, I I grew up in New York. So going to Harvard, 1986 dorm room, you and two others, I believe, start a business, but it was first in typesetting. And what's amazing here, it's, you normally uh, college kids do pizzas, hot dogs, maybe software, but tell us about typesetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were um, we were all on a. Uh, political science magazine um, at the time, and uh, we were in, uh, you know, I myself and um, a couple of um, other uh, uh, underclassmen were, you know, put in charge of the kind of the 
the the worst part of uh, the magazine uh, at the time, and that was uh, to uh, to typeset it uh, to actually make camera ready copies. So this was um, at the time where uh, most uh, publications were still manually um, sort of put together with with uh, wax guns and blue line and and line tape and uh, X-Acto knives and uh, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, no one would ever, ever dream of uh, putting a publication uh, together like this. So, but that was, it was quite expensive and, and required skill, uh, which, which as uh, college kids, uh, we, we did not have. <laughs> so we uh, uh, went to a new technology, and that was desktop publishing. And at that time, desktop publishing was brand new, and it was done on you know, a new computer called called the Macintosh. And we realized by using the school's uh, computers and the school's laser printers, we were able to dramatically save money for the school publication. Um, and we thought, hey, because we could save money for this school publication, I wonder if we could start a business and save money for uh, businesses uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, so we started a typesetting company or a desktop publishing company um, and we became uh, known. Uh, uh, we were we were successful, and uh, uh, we became known in the in the the in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as a sort of a great place to get uh, desktop publishing done. And your original name was at least one of them was Mac Temps. Right. That was a little later. Actually, our first original name was called Laser Designs <laughs> uh, because laser printers were new and we not only did typesetting, but we rented out our computers and our laser printers for $6 an hour and 50 cents a page. And students and uh, academics and just people in the community would come to our shop. We literally had a storefront where, we're, though we were in school, Full time, uh, we opened this uh, this shop, you know, nine to six uh, Monday through uh, Sunday. So we were open seven days a week. We ran our shop. We rented out our computers and our laser printers during the day, and at night we did typesetting. So we were we were we were uh, uh, quite busy. Twenty four seven. Yeah, exactly. We're uh, no, yeah. We, no we, idle we, equipment. No, exactly. You know, we keep our assets uh, uh, productive, and. Um, um, and so what started happening, though, was that people uh, knew we were really good at desktop publishing and they wanted us to go to their site, to go to their offices and do various work work for them. And um, I was a uh, temp in high school. So there was there was one summer in high school where um, where I wanted to get a job and I and I, I tempt for a, a company in Manhattan um, and and so that's so I, I vaguely knew you know very you know something about the temper industry, but to me it sounded like people wanted temps from us. So we started a company called Mac Temps, um, and the premise was a really uh, a simple: if you needed someone to use your Macintosh computer, give us a call. At that time, our competitors uh, were general staffing firms like Manpower or or Kelly's uh, Services, and if you called them. Um, and ask for someone to use a Macintosh, they might send you a DOS person or a WordPerfect person. And that person would not be able to use a, a graphical user interface or a mouse, you know, something that we find really common today. So, so we were the only game in town to get qualified people. So we ran a little ad in, I mean, this, this ad must have cost $35 um, and it was small, maybe three by four inches in the Macintosh Computer Society's 
It's actually the Boston Computer Society's Macintosh magazine at the time. And it said, you didn't buy just any computer. Why hire just any temp to use it? And lo and behold, with a little very inexpensive ad, our phones started ringing. Uh, because if you're a company at the time, uh, you had no place to go for a qualified Mac person because they would send you a, a PC person, um, except us. And so immediately our, our sales uh, took off. We really filled a niche in the marketplace for specialized Macintosh temporaries who really knew what they were doing. And how did you expand beyond that? And when did you change your name yet again? Yeah, we, um, we uh, expanded um, beyond that uh, really, uh, really immediately. We, we thought to ourselves, hey, you know, if, if we could be successful in Boston, uh, why, not, why not New York? And then so we opened up an office in New York, then we opened up in L.A., then London, then Chicago. Um, and eventually we had off, we, we as, as we do today, have offices across the United States, as well as uh, eight other, other countries. Uh, temporary help is uh, not uh, not done in in many countries, but in in a lot of the Western com- uh, countries it is, and that that's where we tend to uh, open our offices. So, the next name, Aquent. Tell us how that was put together. Um, we as we started growing, uh, companies used Macintosh computers in their. Um, graphic arts departments at the time. I mean, that's that's where the, the Macintosh had a niche um, and, and the rest of the companies were, were all PCs. Uh, so we started doing um, a lot of Macintosh work, but we ended up doing really uh, work for the creative services departments of, of large companies. Which would and, include then? Uh, creative uh, means uh, graphic design, um, illustration, uh, desktop publishing in the old days. Uh, today, it would be uh, user experience, uh, web development, uh, application uh, development and design. And uh, Equent, um, how did that word come up? Oh, yes. Fun. Thanks for asking. Yeah, Equent is a uh, made-up uh, Latin and <laughs> Greek word. It means uh, not a follower. You know, A means not uh, se- uh, a quintus from sequential, um, so it's not sequential. And we think that describes uh, our attitude. Uh, you know, we always like to challenge conventional wisdom. We always like to innovate. So it really describes our, our company uh, really well. And so that's how uh, we got the name Aquent. Then uh, as you expanded, uh, you did something in the early 90s, around 1993, you say you became the first staffing company to offer comprehensive benefits to its employees. I believe you had a scale. If you worked 10 hours a week, you had certain benefits and more if you did more hours. Walk us through first the decision to do benefits and then how you implemented it. Sure. Uh, the time was approximately yeah, 1992, 1993. There was a presidential election um, at that time, and one of the uh, big issues uh, were the 40 million Americans who did not have health insurance. And our, at our company, uh, we wanted to be um, part of the solution uh, rather than part of the problem. Uh, temporary help companies at that time, um, and still today, um, except for us, uh, do, not, do not offer benefits for their uh, employees. Uh, so though at a temporary help company, the majority of the employees are, are W-2s, uh, they, they typically have no health insurance, have no... Uh, 401k, 
um, have no uh, paid time off, um, et cetera. The W-2 means you're a formal employee of a company. You get a W-2 each year. If you're a private contractor, you get a 1099 each year. A W-2, an employer, deducts the necessary taxes, uh, deals with any benefits provided, whereas with a 1099, it's up to the contractor to pay the payroll taxes, the federal income taxes, and whatever else that person wants to do. Is that right, John? That's exactly right. And and what we wanted to do was change that because we had a different thought in mind. We thought that if we wanted temporary help and contingent lifestyle or gig work, as as you so um, um, as so many people call it today, if we wanted that business to expand, if we wanted the benefits of a flexible workforce um, to to become more mainstream, we needed to give it. Um, the 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 benefits that a normal job would provide. So we became the first staffing company um, in the United States to offer full health insurance benefits uh, for our employees. Um, and so um, the way it worked is if you worked, and the way it works today is if you work at least 20 hours a week or essentially half-time work, uh, you are eligible for uh, for be- benefits. And our benefits are um, Affordable Care Act platinum level benefits. So, so in other words, I'm the CEO of the company and the benefits and the health insurance that my family is on is the exact same benefits that all of our talent and all of our temps are on. Uh, we do not run two or multiple uh, benefit systems for different classes of employees. Uh, everyone gets very good benefits. So does this mean if I hire an aquent person or a team, uh, the fee I pay you covers their benefits? Exactly. Uh, and that is the real uh, uh, benefit, if you would, uh, for, for hiring uh, our folks. Uh, by, by giving people great benefits, um, we attract and retain the very best people. So in our calculus, we say, hey, if you're a really good uh, talent and you really like the gig lifestyle, the freelance lifestyle, and why do you like the freelance lifestyle? You like it because you can control where you want to work, when you want to work, with who you want to work, what projects you want to work on. And you know, you have you have a lot, a lot of control. The variety of your work is, is very different. Um, and if you really like that lifestyle, you know, you, you have to make a calculus in terms of who you're going to work for um, uh, in 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 order to to have that lifestyle. What we're saying is because we offer uh, something that no one else offers, which is benefits, health insurance, 401k, dental plans, PTO, um, et cetera, um, uh, we, we attract and retain the very best people. And that is the reason why companies by the way, offer benefits uh, to their employees um, because they want to attract and retain the very best people. Now, for some reason, companies do not think of their extended workforce when they when they when they when they think about this. They think, oh, my employees are my workforce, and everyone else, you know, is a vendor or a ten ninety nine. But but in reality, a company's uh, workforce or human assets today go well beyond employees. Um, and that's why uh, everyone should have benefits. And it, that, that's what we started to do in 1993, well before, you know, the quote-unquote gig economy, well before the Internet uh, even. And uh, 
before going on with that, a uh, little bit more about Aquint, you have a number of parts of Scout, Vitamin T, Robohead, Gymnasium, Aquint Studios. Quickly, uh, why, why so many pieces? Well, we're a, um, we're a pretty uh, entrepreneurial company, and uh, every piece that we have uh, serves a function in helping us become the premier services company for the extended workforce. Um, and so Gymnasium is our MOOC. Uh, which is a massively open online course. So through Gymnasium, we can we do train tens and thousands of people uh, in the type of skill sets that we place our talent on. Uh, Scout is a marketplace for recruiters. So in other words, if a company wants to work with um, many, many staffing companies, uh, they could go on to Scout to hire uh, their recruiters. And, and so Scout is a, a marketplace of recruiters. Uh, Robohead is a marketing project management uh, SaaS software. So in other words, a, as you know, we, we uh, started by, by uh, placing a lot of folks with creative services department. Well, Robohead today is the leading software for that internal creative services departments use to run their operations. Uh, we have, uh, for instance, over 10,000 users um, of, of that software. So every component that, that we uh, operate in essentially helps um, us provide the premier level of services for marketing and creative talent to large companies. So in terms of uh, staffing, is it fair to say that uh, the people you place are more highly skilled than what you would find at, say, at a manpower? Uh, very much so, because we specialize in uh, marketing and design. Uh, we, for, for many years, have been the uh, number one uh, player uh, in that space. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we work very hard to be uh, really, really good at, at our niche. On that note, we'll take a brief pause from my interview with John Schwang to bring you a brand new segment that we're calling Steve Reed's Reviews. And speaking of working very hard at being really good at your niche at what's ahead, we highly value listener feedback. So in this segment, we're going to take a moment to read some of the reviews you've left for us on Apple Podcasts. Here it goes. This one is from the Schaefers on February 4th. One of my Do Not Miss podcasts. The interviews are diverse and deep, often giving me perspectives and points of view I do not hear anywhere else. Love Steve's perspective and the What He's Reading segment, well worth my time. Mr. Schaefer or Schaefers, you are geniuses or a genius. I love it. Now, here's one from Boltman Bill. Steve is always superbly well-prepared, providing interesting background about his guests, insightful and probing questions, and the impact of his guest contributions. Steve is an inspiration and a teacher who enlightens me with the limitless possibilities of the entrepreneurial spirit. Warmest wishes, Bill Joswick. Well, Bill, you've really made my day with that one. We do try to prepare deeply here. We do try to provide lessons, not just getting information from these interviewees, but also information and insights that you can use for your daily life, whether in a practical sense or an inspirational sense. And finally, a personal one from Steve, I like that name, 
Chelsea, Alabama. I carried my college textbooks in the green and gold capless tool bag in the 1980s. Also, a personalized set of the sayings of Chairman Malcolm and the further sayings. Forbes has always been on the cutting edge of trends. I love these podcasts. I'm the only one in my family to have never personally met the Forbes family. My brother was Malcolm's personal chef in the 1980s and was very impressed with the Forbes family. Well, Boltman Bill, we're very glad to hear from you. I'm glad that your brother fed us well. I still show the effects of it today. My waist is bigger than ever. Thank you again to the Schaefers, Boltman Bill, and Steve from Chelsea, Alabama. If you'd like to be part of the Steve Reads Review segment, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. And now, back to the second part of my interview with John Schwang, in which he talks about what's ahead with worker benefits in the changing U.S. workplace. So is this a U.S. workforce? You've talked about people wanting to do their own thing on their own time. Is this evolving workforce overall a good thing? I believe uh, I believe it's it's very good. Uh, I think U.S. competitiveness today is enhanced because of the variety of ways that we can engage labor. Uh, look, in uh, the U.S. labor force really uh, took its modern shape, you know, after World War II. Uh, you could think of it as the, the era of, of big companies, uh, big unions. Um, but, but work was it was a little bit uh, homogeneous. You had uh, folks who, you know, if I, I think of, you know, my parents, uh, you know, working for uh, big institutions, um, uh, nine to, you know, you know, nine to five, um, and and everyone was employee, and everyone was a full time employee. Sure, there was part times here there, but it was essentially a em- employer employee model. In fact, that's why. Benefits in our country evolve that way. Benefits are not, you know, as we all know, distributed uh, in the United States through through the government. They're in, distributed through the employee-employer model, um, and and that that worked really well when everyone was uh, was an employee. But over time, that the needs for um, for variability and the need to bring in the right person at the right time. Um, became became apparent. And so today, the workforce is very, very different than, than my parents' workforce. There are many, many different ways to work uh, for a, a, a company, whether it's through contracting or temping or outsourcing or gig work. And, and U.S. companies gain a lot of flexibility and the, a lot of cost efficiencies to be able to bring in the right people at the right time. Not all talent want a full-time 30-year career at the same company. If you do, that's great. There are plenty of companies, there are plenty of opportunities for that. But a lot of workers today want more flexibility. They want to choose where they want to work or who they want to work on. They want they want to balance work um, and life. Um, and, and for those employees, um, there are increasingly really nice sets of options to be able to get interesting work when you want it, um, and and we're we're really part of that economy, so it really helps both sides of the equation, and and it's a really exciting part and a really new part of the workforce today. 
how, how do you see this uh, flexibility of the workforce evolving, especially when it comes to benefits? The, uh, the flexibility that we described are often provided by uh, consulting firms or temporary help staffing firms. By and large, all these companies, my company, E&Y, Manpower, uh, et cetera, they all employ folks as W-2 uh, or as, as employees. So in other words, all worker norms that uh, we all you know, know uh, in terms of minimum wage, overtime, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, you know, we, we provide the full range of basic, normal worker protections that, that we, we all kind of come to uh, know and expect. Um, and so the flexible economy worked really well, uh, where you would, you would hire um, a, let's say, a staffing company or a specialized outsourcing firm to provide uh, labor um, on, a, on a variable basis. So they would come in and do a project and when the project's over, they would disband. It's almost like the Hollywood model, right? Lots of talented people right. get together, build a great... Or a political campaign. Or a political campaign, exactly. People get together, work intensely and passionately for a, a, a mission or a movie or, or a creative project, et cetera, and, and then, the, then they disband. So that's, that's really great. But the evolution has really come from, I would say, gig economy companies, because all of a sudden a new type of company appeared. And they're really the exact same as, 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 as a, a staffing company. They're providing uh, those with skills to those who need skills. But all of a sudden, they did it through an app, let's say, or through a, a website. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's really wonderful. Except this class of companies, and we now th know them today as Uber, Upwork, Wanalo, Fiverr, Task Rabbit, you know Amazon's Mechanical Turk, um, DoorDash, etc. These these sort of gig economy companies have have sort of on their own decided to sort of opt out out of employee uh, taxes, <laughs> and essentially they consider all their employees uh, 1099 or freelancers. And so in the United States, I guess you could pay someone as an employee if um, they're working for you, and and you know, it used to be everyone sort of did that. Everyone paid their fair share of taxes, um, but all of a sudden, gig economies companies said, "Hey, they are not employees; they're independent contractors. They're almost like independent businesses on their own. So I do not have to. Um, I could just write them a check for a certain amount of money, and I do not have to uh, withhold uh, for." Uh, any taxes. I do not have to uh, apply minimum wage, overtime, unemployment, workers' comp, you know, paid time off, and, and all sorts of workplace standards. Any law that is designed to affect an employee, such as, you know, safety laws, harassment laws, you know, all these companies said none of these, none of these apl apply to us. And their growth has, they've grown very, very quickly in the economy, you know, from nothing 10 years ago. They're probably 10 million gig workers uh, today. And that's good 20% out of the 50 million uh, gig workers in the, uh, or contract workers uh, in the United States. And remember, that's part of the 150 million uh, workers uh, in the United States. So this uh, 10 million group is growing very, very quickly. Um, unfortunately, uh, they do not have 
any of the worker norms that we've come to expect um, in the United States uh, that we've developed uh, for the last uh, 50 years, and, and that's, that's unfair. Well, you say you see a problem, uh, what you call benefits inequality. Um, take an Uber driver. That person probably has another job. Uh, they do this on the side. People do projects on the side. Uh, we at Forbes have a bunch of contributors online who uh, contribute articles. Uh, how, how does this uh, benefits thing uh, apply to them? Well, if you look at Uber, it's not everyone who just works a side hustle. Uh, 50% of their rides are actually completed by people who work full-time for Uber. That number is approximately 280,000, which is an enormous number. So 280,000 folks work full-time as drivers for Uber. Now, normally, if you work full-time for a a company, uh, you would be an employee. But at Uber, Uber chooses to call them independent contractors. Um, As a result... Uh, 280,000 folks do not get the benefit of uh, any employment uh, protection or any employment laws. To put into context, Microsoft has 140,000 employees. So it's, it's the equivalent of two Microsofts all paid as 1099. And, and, that, and that's just one company. Um, uh, you have companies like Amazon Mechanical Turk, where the average wage for, uh, for Amazon Mechanical Turk, the median person who works for that gig service, makes $2 an hour. Um, 96% of people at Amazon Mechanical Turk uh, make $7.25 or less. So that's 96% uh, of people who are earning less than the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage. How, how, how many people would that be? Um, uh, at Amazon uh, Mechanical uh, uh, Turk, um, uh, it would be a couple of thousand people. And they do this voluntarily? Uh, yes, they do. And the reason why they do that, the reason why someone would work for, for $2 an hour uh, in the United States is because these are typically the most vulnerable uh, workers uh, in the United States. And Mechanical Turk, a task might be you sit in front of a computer at home and uh, and you complete a survey, or you look at a photo, and you classify it in a certain way. So it's a lot of a lot of repetitive, um, pretty pretty simple uh, work. Um, and but the rates that they they pay are you know below any minimum wage standard. And you know I I I believe you know the question society has to ask is is this okay? Why do we have a minimum wage? Um, and if we do, is it okay that some companies have to abide by these standards, but here's a whole class of companies, uh, you know, a gig economy company that suddenly doesn't have to abide this. And, and if you look at Amazon Mechanical Turk, there's this, again, problem that this, this company, Amazon, is, is run by the, you know, obviously the richest, richest person in the United States uh, or in the world, and th- that's great. But, but you know, I, I feel like, it, you know, is it a shame that we, they also run a service that, that thinks it's, it's okay to pay folks a median average of $2 an hour. Is there a way to deal with uh, abuses of uh, people, contractors, uh, without, uh, as the cliche goes, throwing the baby out with the bathwater? 
In California, for example, you have huge lobbying. I think 70,000 truckers have now been exempted. Our own contributors in California, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep them on, even though they write for numerous other outlets, uh, because we get caught up in this thing. Uh, was that uh, using a, a bazooka where uh, maybe a something a scalpel would have... Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're talking about. I, I think... Um, I think that California, the AB5 law, Assembly Bill 5 law, is actually a really uh, good law. And, and here's why. And I, I'm taking a look at this from a, from a, from a business person standpoint uh, who operates in California. We have a lot of companies in California. Before AB5, to determine whether or not someone was a 1099 or a W-2, you had to, you know, in California, uh, do this something called a Borello test. So it was a, a series of 20 questions that you have to ask yourself to sort of determine if this person is an employee or a contractor. A question might be, you know, do they provide their own tools and equipment? Uh, do they invest in the business? Do they hire people? How do they get paid? And there was no definitive answer. So in other words, a business had to just kind of take a guess at it and then hope for the best. And occasionally they get sued, go to court. Some courts interpret the Borello questions one way, other courts interpret it another way. And, and you really had a lot of uncertainty. Um, so that's why AB5 was created. AB5 was created to create clarity. So you took all the mess of 20 questions and all these you know, complicated individual determinations, and then you come up with massive simplification. So now with AB5, you just have three questions. And if you can answer yes to all three questions, pay them 1099. So question one is, are they free from control or direction? So in other words, if I control what that person does, um, they're an employee. If not, they could be a 1099. Second question, do they work outside the usual course of the company's business? So in other words, if the company was let's an orchestra and they hired a you know, violinist, well, orchestras normally hire violinists. So if you hire a violinist part-time, they're going to be an employee. Um, if you hire, let's say, a plumber and you're an orchestra, yeah, you could pay them a 1099. And the last thing is, does the employer engage in, in the same type of work uh, when working for another, others? In other words, do they have other clients. They, so they simplify the 20 questions into three questions that, that all have to pass in order to determine if it's a 1099 or a contractor. And, and to me, that's, that's a lot better from a business standpoint because instead of an amorphous 20 questions where everyone could interpret it a different way, now we have a much clearer, simpler test. Our contributors uh, write these pieces. Uh, they're not uh, full articles as you would find in the, the magazine. And uh, they use other outlets as well. Some of them see as a branding opportunity. But in California, it looks like we may have to uh, get rid of them. They, they, they're, they're not full-time. They do uh, three, four, five pieces a month, opinion pieces, many cases. What happens to them? Well, Shouldn't they be able to write for us if they wish? Yeah, well, three, well, three pieces a month, by the way, three times 12 is... is um, um, puts us over the threshold. Puts they you over the, way puts over the you, threshold. Um, puts you over uh, the threshold. But here's the issue. And, 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 Maybe they should and, and, be. And, and, the, so, and the article, the, the, the articles they do, uh, three or four or five, whatever it is, 
I guarantee you, doesn't uh, take uh, 250, 200 hours a month unless they're very slow. Right. So, so yeah, right. So the question is, are, are these folks being paid um, above minimum wage for the amount of work that they're doing? And so if they are uh, being paid above minimum wage, then there is no problem. Just pay them as employees, you know, pay taxes like, you know, millions of other uh, uh, companies do, um, and there is no problem. Um, however, if right now, um, for example, if in, you know, my orchestra example, if an orchestra uh, decides to have violinists, but, you know, they cannot just choose to pay them in any way they want to. You know, you're either an employee, there has to be rules that are fair for everyone. There has to be a level playing field. So, so um, we're not even talking about an outrageous, exorbitant ask here. We're, we're basically saying follow the minimum law, wage laws that many states have, have that all states have, have created. But you don't get, you don't get just because you're a gig economy company, you don't get to choose to, to just ignore these laws when everyone else has to. Freelance writers, I think, uh, live in a different universe. But uh, uh, describe your uh, what you call your square deal. Yeah. So square deal is uh, part of our services where we allow companies uh, to offer benefits to, to their extended workforce. We've been talking a lot about gig economy companies, and that's great. Fortune 500 companies also have an interesting workforce uh, issue going on, and that is uh, that of a, a second-class uh, citizen emerging in their workforce. Now, take a typical high-technology company. A typical high-technology high company might have 100,000 employees, um, but they also have 100,000 other workers who are either temps, contractors, or vendors um, who are outside you know, the kind of typical notion of what an employee is. And all 200,000 people work hard every day to sort of, you know, build, build whatever the, the company is building. They work arm by arm, side by side, except half the employees get benefits. Half the, ben you know, and, and some of these, uh, you know, some of the largest tech companies, the benefits are quite rich. They're really, they treat their, the workers really well. Um, but the other half don't get any benefits, don't get any pay time off. You know, a lot of tech companies might close for a week at the end of the year. So everyone gets kind of a week off vacation. But half of the workforce gets essentially furloughed for a week um, and they get no pay. And so they're treated very differently. So, again, there's a second class citizenship arising in these companies. And companies are saying, wow, I never realized this. Uh, this is a problem because because workers in their own companies have protested, have have walked off the job. Ten U.S. senators have written letters to, to companies basically saying, hey, can you employ the, these folks? And, and so companies are kind of listening to their own workers, their employees, to the public, and they're basically saying, hey, we want to solve this problem. You know, we don't want to have or have not system inside our workplace. Um, so that's where Square Deal comes in. Square Deal basically offers a system uh, to enable companies to offer benefits for their extended workforce, no matter where they came from. Company can't just give an extended worker or a, you know, a non-employee worker benefits because they're not their employee. You, you, there's, there's no mechanism uh, to, to really do that. So 
what Square Deal does is it makes the employee uh, part of part of our company. We give them benefits. We give them the the care and the love that a company should give its employee, um, such as the benefits administration, the employee relations. You know, just think of all the kind of HR functions that employee uh, should have. Um, and then our technology enables us to then pay the various sources of this talent. Um, so in other words, a, you know, a company might have a hundred staffing vendors, none of them offer benefits or they offer all offer different sorts of benefits, but a large company might want a, a standard set of benefits and Square Deal enables us to give all those workers benefits, no matter where the, the source comes from. Uh, one final question, are companies uh, like EY or Apple, you there. Some of them are your clients. Are they uh, going to be cutting you out and just uh, doing this in-house, doing their own in-house uh, uh, personnel sourcing? And uh, where 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 do you see that heading? So, if you look at the um, uh, growth of whether or not you call it the gig economy or the staffing or it's essentially a flexible work over the last fifty years, you see that's growing very rapidly. Uh, companies have kind of understand that uh, to to be able to source people uh, for short-term projects um, and put them under your their own benefit system you know they'll they'll hire a certain amount of employees uh, right now it's it, you know for a lot of tech companies largest tech companies around 50% but the other 50% they they say hey it's much better for us to have these folks employed by someone else so Rather, so I think the opposite is happening. I think companies are realizing more and more that they just want the right skills at the right time. And there are other specialist companies like Aquent who could provide all the infrastructure around providing a great employee and making that sure that employee has great benefits, is well taken care of, and is loved. That's our job. That's what we provide. And the company gets the benefit of the right skill at the right time to accomplish that project and, and win in the marketplace. So I think companies are realizing that it's a, it's a kind of an ecosystem that of, of different types of workers that makes them successful. Thank you very much, John, for joining us. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you enjoyed my interview with the insightful and innovative thinker, John Schwang of Aquent. And now, this one's for you, Schaefers, my reads of the week. First one by Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. You can find it on wsj.com called This is No Time to Go Wobbly on Capitalism. She wrote this piece from a speech she gave to the Hudson Institute, and she warns about hyphenated capitalists. She says people think of themselves as socialist capitalists, but now there's a new breed that hyphenates capitalism. Yeah, they're sort of capitalist, but with a caveat. She says nonsense to that. What these hyphenated capitalists are doing is end up just giving more power to government. Good, thoughtful piece. Another one. This one is by a fellow named Mark Perry. You can find it at WashingtonExaminer.com. It's called Taxpayer Subsidies for Electric Vehicles Only Help the Wealthy. He gives examples. New Jersey, for example, you don't pay sales tax on an electric vehicle. Well, who subsidizes that? Working people who may not be able to afford an electric vehicle. 
Why should they be subsidizing high-income people? Not right. Another piece. This one, I guess, gets to my Scottish heritage. It's called Trump's War on Whiskey is a Dram Shame. D-R-A-M. You're supposed to laugh. It's written by Eric Bohm, B-O-E-H-M. You can find it on Reason.com. Since October, for example, there's been a 25% tariff. Now, remember, tariff is another word for sales tax on single malt scotch whiskey. This war on whiskey has become collateral damage, he says, in a long-running spat between the U.S. and the European Union over subsidies to airplane manufacturers. So let's drink up to no tariffs on whiskey or anything else. Then, in this time of politics, coronaviruses and the like, you need some relaxing reading, or at least thrilling reading. I just finished a book called The Museum of Desire, a gaudy mystery by the one and only Jonathan Kellerman, a noted best-selling mystery master. So to get away from it all and give you some thrills and chills, Pick up the book, The Museum of Desire. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 